G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 with Neil Johnson on Vision. In Australia and perhaps across the Western world, it appears that opposing sides on political debates are deepening their dislike for one another. And now perhaps opposing sides are more divided than ever before. The inner city, far removed from the bush, there's a growing disparity between the haves and the have-nots. The planned referendum for an Indigenous voice to the Parliament, even threatening racial divide. In fact, new race theories like critical race theory polarises people, creating victims and perpetrators. We're divided over marriage. We're divided in a battle for gender equality. And politically, the divide in the so-called culture wars is prominent as we debate social issues. Our special guest today is often described as the only adult in the room on issues of national conversation due to his reputation for being a voice of reason in often contentious debates. John Anderson served as Deputy Prime Minister of Australia from 1999 to 2005. He's always been known for his principled approach to politics and his ability to navigate complex issues with clarity and insight. Always our pleasure to welcome back John Anderson. John, welcome to 2020. Thank you for having me, Neil. It's good to be with you and and with your listeners in Queensland. I love Queensland and I'm not just being trite. I really do. I always look forward to going there. You'll always be welcome here too. Hey, preparing to speak at the upcoming Church and State Summit, uh, you were a speaker in the very inaugural event of the Church and State Summit. Uh, You're making a comeback six years on. Uh, The national conversation is still a part of what you like to address, and for some listeners, they'll know you're doing wonderful conversations with some of the best thinkers and leaders in the world, getting their understanding and appreciation of the challenges that not only Australia but the whole world faces. What sort of things are you preparing to talk about for the Church and State Summit? I actually will be borrowing a phrase from Os Guinness, We are at a civilizational moment. Everything that our civilization, our culture, our political life, our economic and social life depends upon is under attack at the moment. It's hard to think of something that's not under attack. It's hard to think of a foundational peer that is not being white-handed. Now, there have been many civilizations down through the age, and when they come to a point of, if you like, disintegration like ours, there are really only one of three things that can happen. You either refuel the engine that drove the car in the first place, you find an alternative fuel, or the civilization declines, which is in fact the most common end to civilizations. So we have to ask ourselves some very hard questions indeed. And the first question is, how is this new experiment working out? Because we've plainly decided that we will reject the fuel, if you like, the sort of Greco-Roman Christian basis of our democracy. That's established. It's rubbished. Academia, media, the arts, 
even politics, business, have moved on. They're trying to find substitute fuels. How is it going? Well, we have a pandemic of depression, of medication. We have unheard of levels of anxiety and depression, self-harm amongst our young people. We're fragmented. We're distrustful. We're divided. We're polarised. I think it's time we started to do some honest self-examination before the whole thing splutters to a halt. John, the trouble is there is a, uh, an ignorance. Uh, there is no one joining the dots. I think many of our listeners today will see where you're joining the dots, where the foundations have given us strength. White-anting those foundations leads us to a place of weakness. But it does appear to be there's real ignorance in our academic uh, leadership and institutions uh, and in political leadership, uh, avoiding and ignoring those foundations, uh, and they have consequences when when those things are are avoided. You know, we've never had so much knowledge. We've never known as much. We've never had as much information or capacity to tap into that information, care of technology. But there's an old observation that many many people have made down through the ages. And it's very simple. You can have knowledge without wisdom. You can't have wisdom without knowledge. We need to actually learn the hard lessons, and history is the best place to start, uh, from, from all of the knowledge we have in order to rebuild wisdom. And the beginning of wisdom, I think, is respect for a greater picture, this idea that we can all do it by just looking within and being our own agent and hang my neighbour and, you know, hang the person that I, I once loved if I've fallen out of love, no commitment, it's all about me, I will find me with from within. That doesn't work. Uh, and I think there are other great lessons to be learnt, uh, as Churchill put it, all that we need to know about statecraft can be learnt from history. And this is one of the fatal traps fatal traps that the progressives have led us into through academia. The idea that there is no wisdom to be received from our forefathers. This is nonsense. If you don't bring the learning of history, the wisdom of the ages, the experiences of those who have been through terrible times and great times to the table, and you do that by studying history, you're lost. You're all at sea. You can't work out where you are and you can't work out where your directions are taking you. I know I'm sounding grim, but I do so only because I care very deeply and I see young people particularly feeling very unsure, uh, struggling to find an identity because they've been told to look for it in all the wrong places and lacking any investment, if you like, a feeling of engagement uh, in, in our culture and, and indeed in our economy for a lot of them. John, when you talk identity, the thought, and sometimes we'll have discussion around the terminology uh, identity politics, uh, people who are identifying with this group or that group or that sexuality or uh, that particular cause, there appears to be uh, a fracturing or a fragmenting uh, away from having that, as you call it, a, a big picture, uh, the idea that we might be one nation together. 
uh, fracturing that and uh, those things being torn to pieces almost by the alignments with all of these minority groups. Any thoughts here around the fact that, you know, we would think about having and being one nation together, but people are more concerned about themselves or the causes that they're getting caught up in? Well, this is the age of uh, identity uh, in the sense that nothing is more important to people than finding, especially young people, finding their identity. The trouble is, as I mentioned a moment ago, they're told to look for it in the wrong place within. And what we actually find when we look within is that we're not up to the task of being God over our own lives. We're, We're not good enough. I mean, goodness me, I wouldn't want to be my own God. I'm hopelessly inadequate to the task. We need something much greater Uh, And as a Christian, I I do profoundly believe that we find ourselves in surrendering notions of finding ourselves from within. In other words, surrendering our our identity and finding it as brothers and sisters of Christ, as children of God. Now, that is an extraordinary thing to say, but I believe it to be true. Uh, And I think when you get to that point, you then uh, get to, to the second point, the really critical point. You're able to see others in the spirit of a shared humanity. That's what's being lost. In the name of identity politics, I establish a worldview based on how I feel and what I think. Then I go looking for other people who are vaguely similar, and we form an identity group, often it's around race or it's around gender or it's around some sort of distinctive feature that is a subset of our greater humanity, our greater identity. And this is one of the great problems we have with identity politics. It tribalizes us, it fragments us, it breaks it up. So we don't begin, heaven forbid, with the idea that we're all children of God. As as Menzies put it, democracy only works when we accept that a higher authority says all souls are equal in the eyes of heaven. Uh, we, We reject that. We reject the idea that my neighbor should be loved as I love myself or the golden rule do unto others as you would have them do unto them. And the line, this is a really important point. You see, in the old days, when you talked about virtue, Neil, um, you and I might have disagreed vehemently on some political issue of the day. But I would have said the fact of the matter is that Neil is a courageous man. He's a brave man. He's an honest man. He's a trustworthy man. He's a loving man. He's a virtuous man. I might disagree with him, but he's a virtuous man. Today, if you dare to disagree with me uh, on fundamental issues of the day, you're no longer virtue. So virtue is attached to what you believe in the causes that you're associated with rather than your personal qualities and that lies at the heart i think of identity politics as solzhenitsyn said the dividing line between good and evil is not between catholic and baptist or man and woman or black and white or jailer and jailed uh, jailed it's somewhere across every human heart Uh, and you see the problem identity politics to pick up on solzhenitsyn again here's the great problem solzhenitsyn made another observation He said, if only it was so simple, the problem of evil, just get rid of the evil people and there'll be no evil. And that's pretty appealing to totalitarian dictators. Get rid of all the bad people and everybody, all the good people will be left. Doesn't work, does it? Because we're all a mixture. Uh, To get rid of the bad people would mean getting rid of all of us, if we were honest. And we don't like the idea of getting rid of ourselves because we lack the humility to have a good, long, hard look at ourselves. I know I'm being very tough today. But I'm being tough because I actually care, because I think, you know, freedom demands that you come to grips with the bad news first, and then you can be set free when you understand what enslaves you. 
if I can put it that way. If we allow the division to continue, John, and the polarising as even some of those issues that I mentioned in our introduction today, and you have one side that becomes much, much stronger than the other, the thought of silencing your critics and then ultimately, as we might even see from history too, once you've silenced your critics, if they do make a noise, you eliminate your critics. That would be the outcome, wouldn't it? Because somehow or other, you've got to make things work in a unified way and not allow things to become so fragmented and distorted and divided that you actually have one group coming out with violence against the other. Well, this is the irony, you see. I mean... When we woke up, that killing one another for different beliefs and what have you was pretty anti-Christian and pretty dumb and very cruel and nasty. We developed a genius for living with our deepest differences based on the idea, if you like, that all souls are equal in the eyes of heaven. And I may disagree with you, but I can't lord it over you. Now, we've abandoned that and we really do try and lord it over others. Power has become about might rather than about principle. Once you take truth and principle and high ideals out of the way we live with one another, it becomes about power. And that is the really ugly thing in the end about identity politics and the way in which in America, in Britain, in Australia, in Canada, New Zealand, the Anglosphere, if you like, uh, we're all product in a way of uh, the British uh, Parliament uh, and their democratic uh, traditions. It was the mother of the parliaments, as they say. Culturally, we're very similar as a, as a people. Uh, and, and, and we're drifting towards this terrible position now where it's all about power. In all of those cultures, the struggle is over power. And you hear, hear the word, we must empower this people, these people, or I feel empowered, or I feel disempowered. And, of course, it's always about political power and your capacity to lord it over you. We have a better way. And, and so that you don't think I'm completely negative, can I say that I genuinely believe there are vast numbers of Australians, Christian and non-Christian, but people of goodwill, who are just waiting and aching for people to stand up and say, let's be Australians together first. We have enough external threats without tearing ourselves apart from within. Helping you make sense of life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. Our talkback line is open on 1-800-316-316. You might like to pose a question or you might have a comment. You might have your own thoughts on the national conversation and even the national conversation, how that drips down into local communities or even into your local church, the sorts of things people are divided over. And uh, perhaps there's been a a subdued negativity in the conversation so far, and I don't think we're going to stay in that. We'll be positive about some things as we go too. Uh, But John Anderson, there are lots of things that are dividing the nation. The debates that we have around climate change, or let's pick up on one that we've been talking significantly about here uh, on 2020, and that, of course, is around the voice, uh, the potential there for dividing a nation along race lines. Uh, but also the potential in the conversation to be uniting a voice as well. Uh, any thoughts here for how the voice might even be a, a vehicle for, for talking about the sorts of things we are today about national conversation? 
Well, I think um, let's let's be positive for a moment. One of the things that we never talk about, almost never, is that there are so many wonderful Aboriginal people who are doing really well, and they've moved into uh, a happy life routine. They've got their work. They've got their families. There are a staggering number of people who have professional degrees and are really making a terrific contribution and enjoying Australian life today. We don't talk enough about that. Secondly, we all know that there are some terrible problems in many uh, remote Aboriginal communities and indeed in many countries, not all, but many country towns uh, and then pockets of places in the big cities that need urgent addressing. Now, the voice, I think, as long as we can keep it calm, can be a good mechanism for having an honest conversation about how we help local Aboriginal communities to find a better way forward. Now, it's known, I think, that I am an opponent of the voice in terms of the way it's constructed at the moment and what we know about it, and that I'm also imposed to the, opposed very strongly to the idea of, uh, of encapsulating race as a concept in our constitution. Uh, and some people say, oh, no, we'd only be recognising people who, on the basis of history, that they were here first, but it would still be only open to one race of people. And so I've teamed together with a significant number of Aboriginal people so to form a group which we call um, Recognise a Better Way. Uh, and there are many Aboriginal leaders who are saying, no doubt about the problems, but we already have an incredible array of voices reflecting our amazing diversity. Let's just listen to them and make them work better rather than invent a new overarching body that I fear will be divisive. Now, there's another big positive in all of this. This is a really important one now. We know at the moment that the reason the voice is enjoying a slim majority, favourable, is that Australians are very well disposed. They actually want to help. I want to clean something up right now. If the referendum says no, it won't be this terrible idea that we're saying to the world we don't care about Aboriginal people. It won't be that at all. It will be the Australian people who are very wise with these things, as long as they have information, saying no, there's a better way. They won't be saying no to Aboriginal people. They'll be saying no, there's a better way. I don't know which way they will go, but I want to clear that up. The Australian people are, I think, overwhelmingly well disposed towards Aboriginal people who are not doing it well and who want to help. We all know that there is a call for more detail around what the voice might mean, and the government is withholding that detail, almost as though uh, there may be a wedge there that they appear to be driving so that people will take a one-side-or-another approach, and for those who don't take the yes side, there's a, almost a characterization of being racist, now, this is challenging because I think everyone would like to hear more detail, but there's something, and I'll ask your thoughts on the politics here, because it does seem to be politicised because there is no model that people are able to talk about. I, I'm afraid that is true. That is my view. We have had, in fact, seven voices before since Whitlam was in power. The last was ATSIC, and it was wound up on a bipartisan basis. Both sides of the parliament in Canberra, I was in government at the time, uh, uh, recognised that ANSIC was a disaster. What happens if we put up another model, which turns out to be a disaster, that actually disadvantages 
the progression of Aboriginal people into better places. And it's locked in a constitution that can't be disbanded. That's point one. Point two is Malcolm Turnbull said it the other day. Malcolm, I think, very cautiously, having been against the voice, now says he's in favour of it. But he did make this observation, I'm paraphrasing, but these are very similar to the words. He said that the problem the government's got itself into is that there are many people who have taken an intelligent, thoughtful, calculated view that to give more details away will result in the referendum being lost. And I say I have a real problem with that. This is uh, the Australian people own their constitution, the rule by which we play. No one should be above it. No one should be below it. To suggest that you should not give the deal details away because that might result in its failure would be to visit a terrible injustice, not only on Aboriginal people, but on everyone. We must know what it is, in my view, before the Australian people vote. And Peter Dutton's idea, I think, uh, as I understand it, legislate for it even get it up and running, give it a pilot run, then let the Australian people decide whether it's something they wanted to enforce in the Constitution as a body that must go on. I would still oppose it because I don't think you should have any race-based provisions. There's a couple there now, mild. I don't think there should be any race-based provisions in the Constitution. We should all be as one Australian, every one of us, privileged to be part of the Australian family. No one above it, no one below it. Interesting when we talk through issues around Aboriginal people and uh, you were saying we ought to be talking more about the good stories. There are good stories in our Australian nation around Aboriginal people and uh, I've been talking to some Christian Aboriginal leaders who are dismayed that while there might be activist Aboriginal leaders and Christian Aboriginal leaders, the Christians are feeling as though they are left out of the debate here. There is a sense, isn't there, and I'll get your thoughts here, around the Christian story being able to make a very good contribution to whatever the outcome might be around Aboriginal people. Absolutely. Uh, I have I represented a lot of Aboriginal people. I was quite struck by the number of elders who would say to me, we owe a lot to the missions because the, the missions get a bad name. They, they, they're cast, for example, as, as terrible because some of them remove children that they thought were in danger. Um, but when you actually represent a lot of Aboriginal people, a lot of elders said to me, you know, we learnt so much from those people who set up schools for us, who taught us the basics like uh, how to eat properly, uh, who taught us how to actually interact uh, with one another uh, and uh, the, the broader uh, white community. It wasn't all negative. Uh, and consider this. In New South Wales, one of the first really horrendous recorded massacres was at Mile Creek. It's not very far from where I'm talking today. It's only an hour and a half's drive away. It was a terrible massacre, appalling, absolutely appalling. And uh, unbelievably, because it has to be said of a couple of decent white people who courageously said, this is outrageous, they must be brought to trial. 11 men, I think it was 11, were put to trial and the jury was heard over saying the leader of the jury, I think, said, no, no, we won't convict them. I'd never see a white man hang for killing a black man. Well, they were acquitted. The chief justice, a man of very devout faith, uh, he wasn't called the chief justice, but the chief legal officer of the day. He was Irish, as a matter of fact, in Sydney. 
very courageously with only one newspaper supporting him because there were newspapers everywhere in those days only one all the rest were against him insisted on a retrial and i think nine of the 11 men were hung and that established the principle in new south wales it was often not observed but they are subject to the same law they're not above it they're not below it. the white man kills a black man then he should suffer so those stories are not told before we take some calls and 1-800-316-316, let me ask you about leadership and the sorts of challenges that we face in Australia. Perhaps we're talking about leaders in political or industry, academia, leaders in general. What are your thoughts on leadership challenges in Australia today? Two stand out to me. One is this is the age of disengagement. Lord Sumption former Supreme Court judge in the United Kingdom, told me in a recent conversation that the British Labor Party had had 1.1 million members right through the 50s, 60s, 70s, into well into the century, and the Conservatives had 1.9, a total of 3 million people who belong to the political party of their choice. Today, the Royal Society of Birdwatchers in the UK has more members than the political parties combined. People are disengaged. And I love Queensland, but Queensland used to be a place where people were highly politically engaged. And when I go up there now, I find that people are cynical and disengaged, uh, not as much as the rest of the country, but much more so than they were even 15 years ago. And I think that's a worry. We need to all learn again to step up and make a difference where we see a need, we see an opportunity, we see a responsibility, all of us. Uh, and the second comment that I would make will surprise you. I think internationally we're looking for a churchill we're looking for a lincoln we're looking for a roosevelt um we're looking for even a reagan uh, and so i think the big issue is um where will the americans go where do they find a leader for the times who can pull that great country back together again because i believe that there are many people crying out for leadership and i certainly have uh, some thoughts in that regard uh, to my way of thinking. I think if I were an American, I would be sincerely hoping that someone like Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, uh, uh, a man or a woman of that sort of ilk of determination, of resolve, of personality, of trustworthiness will step up because the critical issue. I need hardly spell out that, you know, the Trump versus Biden dilemma must come to an end soon and it needs to be supplanted by somebody who can fire up imagination and argue a case. We are taking calls, 1-800-316-316. Let's hear from Richard in Alstonville in New South Wales. Richard, thanks for waiting patiently. What are your thoughts? Uh, g'day, guys. I had a question for, for John, firstly. Um, it concerns me with, with the voice that... that the Labor government just want to push push it through quickly without any consultation from different groups. And they say, oh, we have the support of different Indigenous groups and different groups. But to me, th there needs to be a lot of foresight and thought, and they need to go, like, Jacinta, is it Jacinta Price? Um, yes, Jacinta Price, yep. Yeah, she, she speaks a lot about um, the groups she talks to, they feel very isolated and very cut off. And there's a lot of groups, like, like her and Warren Mundine have said on a lot of occasions, there's a, there's a lot of Indigenous groups that need to be co consulted properly before they put the voice forward. And I feel if, if we don't do things like that properly, 
we'll have a situation like they have in, say, New Zealand or South Africa where where racism is turned on its head the, the opposite way. Like, in New Zealand, it's not, not quite as evident all the time, but in South Africa is a very um, strong example of that. Good thoughts in there, Richard. Uh, John, what's your response for Richard from Alstonville? Well, just said to Price and Warren Mundine and others like Bob Little, Pat Conway, uh, here in my own home area, Peter Gibbs, remarkable, believing leader, are against the voice. Uh, they don't think it'll work. They recognise that entrenching privileges for one group in the Constitution flies in the very face of the genius of Western liberal democracy, which is that all citizens enjoy exactly the same status at law. No one's above it, no one's below it. And I think the lack of detail and debate around the model itself, what is it really like? We don't know, for example, will people be voted onto it or will they be selected? That's actually a huge, huge, huge issue because many of the still culturally connected Aboriginal communities are kinship-based and they won't participate in elections. The natural leaders who are respected will stand back and they'll say, well, you wouldn't vote for the Queen or for the King, so you don't vote for me either. Uh, that's a cultural difference. I'm not being critical. I'm just saying it goes to the heart of whether this is going to work or not because we've had forerunners to the voice. The last one was called ATSIC. There have been seven, I'm told, since uh, uh, you know uh, Whitlam was in power, and they've all failed. So this one, we're being told, we should take it on trust and lock it into the Constitution so it ne can never be unwound unless there's another referendum. And I think that's wrong. So I understand your concerns. It's not racist to say, I'm concerned about this. It may actually turn out to be damaging for Aboriginal people, which is what many Aboriginal leaders themselves are saying. Richard in Alstonville, thank you so much for your call. Our talkback line open on 1-800-316-316. Let's come back to leadership for a moment here, John, because sometimes when we're thinking leaders, we're thinking leaders at the top, those national leaders, those state leaders, those leaders in industry, uh, leaders in academia. But we've all got a leadership role to play in our local communities. Is there a danger in thinking that assuming some level of leadership is too complicated and I won't get involved? Or is there room for a specialisation in your area of gifting right back into the local communities? What are your thoughts here? Well, a leader is somebody who, uh, one way or another, for better or for worse, induces some other human being to do something they wouldn't have done otherwise. It's pretty basic. You move someone to do something they were not going to do. Um, and if it's used wisely, of course, it's the greatest force for good of all. And I think everyone exercises leadership at some point, even if it's just uh, in raising their children. And leadership is unbelievably important. The leader will have a vision where to go to. That's first thing. Secondly, they'll have the ability to explain what they're about. And thirdly, they'll have the personal qualities to make people want to work with them to achieve it. And it's needed absolutely everywhere in our society. We need leaders everywhere. And what worries me is that a lot of good Australians, I think, have reached the point where they think, oh, I can't make a difference. It's hopeless. I'll just get on with my own life. When often they're the people who could make a real difference. 1-800-316-316. Let's take another call. Sue is in Kingston, Tasmania. Hi, Sue. Welcome. 
Hello, Neil. Um, and hello, John. I've just switched on the radio a short while ago and this is a subject very dear to my heart because I've lived and worked with Aboriginal people in the Northern Territory and also in the in New South Wales. And I feel very passionate about this because where the Aboriginal, certain Aboriginal people are against the voice, they want the no vote, they want treaty. But as I see it, the majority are for the voice because it gives them something and treaty will not come about for years to come. And as John was saying, leaders are needed. There's a desperate need for leaders everywhere. And as I've found in um, working with the Aboriginal people and recently coming back from Alice Springs, they need leadership. And you've got people like Marcia Langton and Tom Karma promoting the yes vote. And they've given very valid reasons for it. And so I think there has to be an understanding that a yes vote at least gives them some leadership. And it's only a, a representation of the people. It's not giving them um, a vote. It doesn't, to my understanding... Sue, you're making some very good sense here. And uh, there are going to be divided opinions, aren't there? The important thing here, perhaps just to pick up on that you're saying here, Sue, and we'll get uh, get John's thoughts uh, for your general comments, but uh, but the Uluru statement from the heart wasn't just about having a voice to the parliament, but it also has these other dimensions of treaty and of truth-telling. And we've been talking about some of those different dimensions, those things one builds on the other and uh, there's challenging things there for everyone ahead and perhaps you've got to start with the voice to parliament but john thoughts here for sue and uh, and and her concern well firstly I'd, we don't have time but i'd love to hear more of what sue's experienced in the northern territory and in uh, new south wales and it sounds like she's been poured out a lot of work and effort and heart and soul into trying to help aboriginal people and that's worthy of huge respect um, secondly, I would say there are a multiplicity of voices, including 11 members, I'm told, 10 or 11, I can't remember now with what it is, in the federal parliament now of um, Aboriginal descent, uh, and uh, that's a good place for them to be. Secondly, they have very different views. You've got uh, Lydia Thorpe on the one hand, you've got Jacinta Price on the other. Lydia Thorpe says, no, we don't want a voice, we want a treaty first. Jacinta says, no, we don't want a voice. We want to simply be heard with the voices we have. And she would understand that coming from the Northern Territory where they had to beg politicians just to listen on the issue of alcohol. You didn't need a formal voice. I have to say, I think it's very naughty of the Prime Minister. I have to say this with some feeling to say the problems out there mightn't have been as bad if we had the voice. The voices have been very clear to hear for a very long time and they were ignored, which raises the other prospect. The voice will only be listened to when it suits the government's agenda of the day. But I think the point I would make, I'm not. I, I, there is a better way to do it than the proposed voice, I believe. I also think that to enshrine one group, I think you said it doesn't give them another vote. No, it doesn't, not technically, but it does give them a second say that no other Australian citizen has before government. 
And I'm not sure that is a good idea. Governments should simply commit to listening and and recognise as part of it, as I think you would recognise, Sue, the different needs of different communities are real and significant in their differences, except for one point. And that one point is, one thing that is universal is that somehow we have to break the cycle of violence so that a generation of children can grow up not traumatised by physical and emotional and moral fear. Sue in Kingston, thank you so much for a great contribution. Uh, 1-800-316-316. Still might be time to take another call or two. When voices are ignored, this really echoes some of the things we were talking about a little earlier in the conversation, John. When voices are ignored or silenced or shut down, uh, eventually, uh, even speculated, uh, eliminated, Uh, when you've got Aboriginal voices ignored, you've got this growing potential too, and uh, perhaps not in the same level that you can't just align these two, the Aboriginal conversation with a Christian conversation, but certainly a Christian conversation is being ignored right now. Any thoughts there on the danger of ignoring that Christian conversation, whether it's an historic conversation or whether it's into current issues or even whether it's about uh, aspirations for the future? Any thoughts here? Oh, very much so. Whether people like it or not, I've heard many people rail against the idea. Oh, they say, you know, our civilization is not Christian. Oh, it came from the Enlightenment. Oh, no, no. It's Greco-Roman. No, it's not. At its heart lies the Christian principle that every soul is equal in the eyes of heaven, as Bob Menzies saw. That is the critical difference. Everyone equally valued, no matter their earthly power, their gender, their wealth, their lack of power, their lack of wealth, doesn't matter. That is the principle that's behind it. We're breaking it. We're smashing it. We're therefore breaking the very heart of our particular civilization. Break it by all means, but show us a better alternative. And that's where, in my view, the hard questions have to be asked. How's it going? And the answer is it's not going well. With all the reasons we've talked about, the division, the lack of respect for one another, the lack of commitment to doing the right thing by your neighbour, treating them as yourselves, and the power play. It's all about raw, naked power, not principle now. And they dress it up as principle. It's always dressed as principle. The experts always dress everything as principle. But so often they lack a commitment to democracy and real outcomes on the ground and human flourishing in people's communities, including the smallest and most important community of all, which is the individual's family environment. To take an opportunity here to express how church and uh, how powerful it is to have a faith foundation for not just a community but for a nation. Uh, Interesting because we're growing into more and more, and this has been uh, developing for decades, this multiculturalism environment. Usually when we talk about multiculture, we're talking multi-religious foundations and uh, well where there's this uh, secularization that turns against all religions of course people haven't left their culture behind and they're trying all sorts of new uh, secular even neo-marxist positions to be able to find a voice and find an identity the interesting thing and i'll get your comment in here john is that uh, history might show us that it's christianity that is the only way that creates this ability to balance all of these different 
uh, cultural backgrounds that people have. Any thoughts here on the value of our Christian faith at a national level? Because it seems to me if we lose that, we're in for all sorts of conflict. Uh, well, I think the genius of Western society has been able, it has, has lain in its ability for people of different views to get along. And now our disagreements are greater than ever. We need more than ever the ability, the genius, to get along despite our great differences and with our great differences. And it's genesis in the West, I think. I agree with Frank Ferruti, who's an atheist, by the way, in England. And he said that freedom of conscience was our first freedom. Freedom of conscience, freedom of belief. Because, shamefully, different branches of the Christian faith were so opposed to one another that they literally, cruelly, horribly burnt others of differing views at the stake. And the outcome was that people after a while were revulsed, they realised this was appalling, and they started to develop the idea of the freedom of conscience. You must be able to believe as you choose and to live your life in accordance with that conscience. Once you lose that principle, once you adopt the self-righteousness that is so everywhere today you, we know tolerance was the great virtue preached at us for a little while it's disappeared no one's tolerant anymore if you dare to disagree you'll be subject to cancelling you know if you have a christian worldview in a place like victoria you'll probably lose your job um this is uh, we are losing the genius at the heart of western culture there is no two ways about it if i had a dollar for every immigrant who said to me over the years, I see worrying trends here, I recognise them because I came from a less happy, harmonious country, I'd be a wealthy man. And what you're saying is that Christians don't always get things perfectly right, but there's now 2,000 years of process whereby we can work through those issues and push towards some level of aspirational harmony. And that's been proven to be true. We're just Let's squeeze one more call in. Uh, Linda is in Cairns in North Queensland. Hi, Linda. Welcome. Thank you. Um, I just wanted to say that I agree totally with what um, our guest is talking about. I um, grew up in South Africa. I was a daughter of a clergy. And when... Apartheid was at its height. The clergy came together. And the clergy and the church that stood united. Can't the church here in Australia stand united in the voice? It takes one person like Mandela to unite, uh, you know, the nations of people who are oppressed. But the clergy, the clergy, the church came together with political leaders. Linda, wonderful thought there. Get a thought here from John because uh, there's an example. Uh, apartheid at its height and the church leaders came together in a unifying voice. Uh, thoughts here for Linda. Yeah, Linda, thank you. You know, the first time I got a paycheck, I thought I would donate to a good Christian cause, and it was African Enterprise. It would have been about 1978. I'm trying to think. It was Michael. I think he's still alive, actually. Uh, Michael. 
I think he was a great leader in that whole movement. I can't think of his name. No, I can't think uh, of that. Anyway, um, I, I understand what you're saying, and it's incredibly important. But unfortunately, the sad reality is that on most issues now today in Australia, the church divides, not unites, when it should be providing a clear voice. Now, there is leadership there. Absolutely. Wonderful Christian leadership. Uh, but there's also people who, under the banner of Christianity, put up almost seem keen on dividing in the way the rest of the community does, and that breaks my heart. So I think my response would be to say, let's go back to the two great commandments, uh, you know, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. The so-called golden rule, if you don't want to call it uh, the Christian second commandment, call it the golden rule. It's time we learnt to respect that all souls are equal in the eyes of heaven, even if we personally don't adhere to Christian faith. Can you think of a better concept for unity and harmony than the idea of respecting the essential worth of your neighbour, even when you disagree? Linda, thank you so much for your call. And our time has run out, John Anderson. No doubt there'll be listeners who would love to capture more of your thoughts and uh, some who've not been aware that you have these wonderful conversations on podcast, uh, video conversations with some of the best leaders and thinkers around the world and able to delve into uh, the politics, the economics and the spirituality of those things as they are developing uh, on the stage around the world. And for those who would like to see John in person, He'll be at the Church and State Summit that's coming up on the 3rd and 4th of March. That's going to be in Brisbane. Uh, there's a host of wonderful speakers who'll be there. The Church and State Summit website is simply churchandstate.com. 3rd and 4th of March, churchandstate.com. And to access some of those podcast conversations with John Anderson talking to absolutely amazing people, johnanderson.net.au and I think John you've got really hundreds of thousands of subscribers uh, to your conversations uh, things are continuing to grow it's just a it's just a wonderful story uh, have you got just a moment just give us an insight how how your conversations have been growing over these years well thank you Neil yeah uh, we do them as a community service they actually lose money not a lot but they do lose money so I certainly don't draw anything out of them I do them out of conviction that it's hard for people who want good content now to access it from mainstream media, people who want to know the other side of the story, people who are uneasy with what they're being fed, the daily diet of progressive uh, uh, values and beliefs, or beliefs and values, put it in the right order. Um, and uh, what's really encouraging is the number of young Australians who say, oh, you know, I tap in. People come up to me in airports. They come up to me in cafes. They come up to me on the street and say, oh, I tap in. Oh, there was a, an, an artist lady in Sydney not so long ago. She came up to me, looked at me quizzically and said, are you John Anderson? I said, yes, I am. And she said, well, you know, I, I, I look like somebody who probably wouldn't listen to your podcast. And I listen to every single one of them. And I thought, isn't that fantastic? And the uh, the appetite that some people have, 
for going deeper is there. And so keep up that great work, John Anderson. Uh, you're doing a tremendous, as you call it, a community service. Uh, thank you for it. And I'm sure there'd be lots of listeners who'd like to say thank you for that too. Keep it going. Johnanderson.net.au. John Anderson, former Deputy Prime Minister of Australia. And uh, thanks so much, John for taking some time to share your thoughts today and your heart with listeners on 2020. Thank you for having me. I've enjoyed it very much. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.